little something for a, a funky weekend. Hey, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Cherry, we started in chapter 1, verse 1, and we worked our way all the way up to here, so that's how we do it in here. Uh, we really do take the Bible seriously. Um, so here we are in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 20. And this is God's word. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's see if this little uh, clip is uh, familiar to some of you. What's it saying? What it says, I love it when a plan comes to God. Corny, 70s television. Uh, the A-Team, but that was George Papard's big line. I love it when a plan comes together. Of course, they made a movie of it that wasn't quite as, well, I guess it was on par with the television show. But um, don't you love it when a plan comes together? I mean, I love it when a plan comes together. I, you know, I'm the worship leader at your church, and I can tell you every single week, uh, there's a, Lord, I hope we make it kind of sense about everything. I mean, everything tech, everything musical, all personnel, everything's got to stop and start at the same time. And when it's over, kind of like the, this, this thing that I'll say is when it, well, Sunday's over, I'll go, well, that worked. <laughs> you know, we survived. It worked. It happened. It's over. Yay. And so I love it when a plan comes together. We all like that. Well, um, I think the big idea that I would love for you to walk out here today with, and I think that's the topic of our passage, is this, that God has a plan behind all visible circumstances. Um, now, it could be just as truthfully and, and comprehensively said that God has a plan behind all circumstances. You could just say that. That would be absolutely true. But uh, this personalizes it in a way, and I, I meant to do that because the writer of Hebrews here, remember, he's a pastor, and uh, he's dealing with the flock. He's doing what I'm doing. He's trying to convey truth to the flock. And of course, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I'm just under the toleration of the Holy Spirit. But he's um, trying to communicate to the flock truths to comfort them and to strengthen their faith. And um, you know, they were under pressures to um, uh, they were under pressures of a belief system around them that was pressing in on them all the time. They were under persecution. It's true, uh, but they were also under the pressure of a belief system that was saying, you know what? the Jesus thing, it's fine, but just would you just chill out a little bit with the exclusivity of him and all that stuff, and it would just make things a lot easier if you would just not be so hard-lined about truth and about uh, who Jesus is and about the Son of God and about this, this doctrine called the Trinity, if you would just chill that out. So they were under pressures, and we're under pressures too. We're under pressures. We're under persecution right now because the whole world thinks we're idiots. The whole world wants to silence us. If we say a marriage is between a man and a woman, they think we're bigots and, and, and haters uh, when really we're just saying, Lord, what, what do you say in your word? What do you say about how you made us? What's your design for us? Whatever that is, we want to have the grace to submit to it. That's where we come from. And so we're under pressures too. We're under pressures of a belief system around us also. And so I think this is very relevant to each of us. And this is a very personal word, I think, to uh, the lives of these first hearers, but to our lives too. Uh, and, and guys, this is the kind of stuff that will get you through the night. Um, 
When, when you're on, on that pillow and you're tossing and turning and things are hard and you're having to process very difficult things about your life or loved ones, um, that God has a plan under all the stuff you see, uh, isn't that the thing that, that will encourage your soul in the night? Um, okay, and by the way, if your soul ever doubts that, all you have to do is look at the cross, and that's really the point of this too. Um, God has a plan under all the circumstances, and the cross is the... Um, outgushing of that. It's the manifestation of all that. So let's look at the first of our three points. We'll spend the most time on this, which is this, God's plan in three lives. Um, So here we are in in verse 20. Let's look at it. It says, uh, by faith, you've got this guy Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. He had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And now you've got Jacob mentioned. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed his own sons. Um, Uh, each of the sons of Joseph. And then by faith, uh, Joseph at the end of his life makes mention of the Exodus. And so you've got um, Isaac, you've got Jacob, you've got Joseph uh, listed here. Now that would be the son, the grandson, the great-grandson of Abraham. So God blesses Abraham. We've been in this this topic of of God's covenant with Abraham. And um, we see now the son, the grandson, and the the, uh, great-grandson, also made very specific promises. Now, keep your finger where you are, and and we're going to look at a few passages today. Turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17. And, um, oh, let me just uh, start reading here. Uh, Chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, so God came to to, uh, Abraham in chapter 12. He called him. He, uh, he uh, covenanted with him in chapter 15. He says, I'm going to take you, and from your body is going to be a great nation. And here we are, uh, finally, Abraham, Abraham's 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to him and said, I am, the, I am God Almighty. Walk before me, be blameless, that I may covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations." No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. That's what Abraham means. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be uh, God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourners, sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, um, that's another articulation of what God said uh, in chapter 15. Flip back to chapter 15, verse 4. Um, God says to Abram, he says, behold, the word of the Lord came to, yeah, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. And on top of all that, God adds this. Uh, Look at verse 13. The Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. So you see that God's got a plan. And even before anybody has come from Abraham's body, kings and so on, um, 
God already predicts that there's going to be a group of people that are going to be taken into captivity for 400 years. That's a pretty big, uh, uh, b- big statement, but that shows you that there's this plan that's underneath everything. All right, so back to our text. You can see that when the writer of Hebrews is writing this, he's assuming that we're knowing that story. And he's assuming that the reader is bringing all that in. And uh, you can see that he has very much the issue of faith on the forefront of his mind. Um, And he means to include an object of faith uh, here, precisely the plan of redemption that God is putting in motion. He wants him to believe that God has this plan in motion. Um, So in verse 20 of our passage, it says, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Isaac was the child born to Abraham. Isaac was the guy who we looked at last week who carried the wood. Abraham had the knife in the air. Isaac's the kid. Hey, where's the uh, animal for the sacrifice, daddy? Uh, That's Isaac. Well, Isaac grows up. He's the child of promise. And listen, God comes to Isaac. Uh, You don't have to turn because I'm already uh, already here. But God comes to Isaac. You know what he says to Isaac? He says, um, sojourn in this land and I will be with you. And I will bless you for to you and to your offspring, I will give these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I'll multiply your offspring as the stars in heaven and so on. And uh, uh, the people will be blessed through you. He says the same thing. He, he, he renews the covenant with, with Abraham's seed, Isaac. Isn't that cool? And so that, that's, that's why the, the writer of Hebrews is, is uh, saying all this now about Isaac. That's why he brings Isaac into it. What's interesting about Isaac is not that much stuff is written about Isaac. I mean, you got the story with Abraham and all that stuff, but most of the scriptural uh, real estate um, written about Isaac, aside from his almost being stabbed by his dad, was um, his blessing of Jacob. Um, now, and by the way, it's also been pointed out, last week somebody came up afterward and said, hey, you know, uh, when Isaac and uh, Abraham were traveling, Isaac had to have been uh, exercising some kind of faith also. That's true, that's true. Um, but what most of, uh, mostly is written about him in the Old Testament narrative is uh, about how his, when, when Isaac is old and blind, his sneaky son Jacob tricks him into getting the family blessing. And amazingly, that sneaky son Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, is here in the passage also, Isaac and Jacob. Now, um, let's talk about Jacob for a second and this blessing and all that. Um, Isaac blesses Jacob. Um, we read about blessing someone in the Old Testament, and it seems really foreign and strange, doesn't it? Uh, they bless someone, and is, is it magic? Uh, what does it mean, this, this whole blessing thing? Well, you understand what a will is, right? I mean, somebody dies, and they, it's their right to determine where their stuff goes. And so families pass on um, their wealth to future generations. So we, we understand uh, what a will is. Uh, you get to say, uh, my stuff gets to go to here, my guitar goes to this person, and, and, and all that, Okay. We understand that. Well, it's the same basic thing. Um, In the culture of Abraham's day, it was custom for the father to give 100% of the stuff to the firstborn son. Now you go, oh, that's unfair, whatever, whatever, dude. It's just that was the culture. It was normal cultural procedure for the father to give 100% of the stuff to the firstborn son. And when somebody would, when dad would say, I'm going to give my, put my blessing on you, that's what he's saying. He's saying, okay, I'm designating you to be the one who gets all the stuff. And now you're going to run the family. Now you're going to be the, now you're going to be the CEO of the whole operation. You're going to take care of this giant uh, family. All right. And so here's what's so amazing. 
In Genesis 25, we're told the story of these two twins, this famous story, Jacob and Esau. And uh, Isaac and uh, his formerly barren wife, isn't it amazing? Uh, Abraham's got a, a barren wife, and so does Isaac have a barren wife, and God brings about uh, his promise anyway. Well, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, um, she uh, decides, hey, let's try to get uh, <clears throat> Jacob in there uh, instead of Esau. Esau was firstborn, and uh, you know the Bible reports this. Um, it says that uh, Isaac loved Esau, and it's, it's, it's suggesting that he, because he was a good cook, <laughs> he liked Esau because Esau was like a man's man. Um, he was like Abraham on Walking Dead, which is kind of interesting that Abraham's redheaded. Well, you don't watch Walking Dead. But anyway, um, he's, he's this man's man. He's, he's he, you know, it, it, Esau means hairy. In fact, Esau was red and hairy. He was a hairy, redheaded dude. And he was an outdoorsman and all that stuff. And um, what does it say about Jacob? It says, oh yeah, Jacob... Um, um, he was, yeah, Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Okay. So that's what, that's what, that's the Bible's report on, on, on Jacob. So Esau's this hairy, swarthy guy who goes out and gets a rabbit, makes his dad's favorite stew, you know, oh, my manly son, I love hunting with him. And then the other one's, you know, quiet and likes to dwell in tents and la, 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 write poetry and stuff, you know, probably. Um, well, so by his mom's idea, she says, hey, let's trick your blind old dad. And uh, I'll whip up a little supper. Uh, I know Esau's recipe. And uh, you take a little bit of animal hair here and uh, go, uh, hey, dad, I smell like the woods and uh, look how hairy I am. And, and they, trick the, they trick him and he ends up blessing Jacob. Meanwhile, Esau comes in. He's like, dad, I got your favorite stew already. I'm here for my blessing. And he's like, sorry, I already gave all the stuff to the other guy. So sneaky Jacob is in on it all. And um, we get a commentary on this from the New Testament. Here's the commentary on all that, that, that whole scene. Um, as it is written, this is in Romans 9, 13. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's, speaking, that's God speaking. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So it was God's will that Jacob be the one who got the blessing and that the, that the, that the heritage passed down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Not Esau, Jacob. It was God's will. It's God's prerogative. We also get a commentary and explanation from the Old Testament, Malachi 1, 2 through 4. It says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. In case you think that's not clear, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Esau says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build but I will tear down. Now, that's not to say that God's a big meanie, but it is to say, I have chosen this one, not this one. It's my prerogative. I'm gonna send the Redeemer through this bloodline, this family line, and it's gonna come this way because I'm the God who's got a plan underneath all of history. Now, Jacob may have been a conniver. My point is this. He might've been a conniver, um, his mother might have been sneaky. They might have tricked blind old dad. But as they were tricking blind old dad and doing sneaky stuff and acting in, the, in their own, what they thought was their own will, what was really happening? That was happening. There's this electrical current rumbling under everything that happens, and it's God working all things together in his own control. And, you know, of course, at the end of his life, he remembers, he's remembered by the scripture writer here for... Um, 
for having come to a place of submission before God and uh, passing on that same blessing and so on. Uh, now, that means um, that, that this all fits into a grander narrative, and that brings us to the next guy, Joseph. Now, in, in Joshua 24, if you, before you turn there, it says in verse 22, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So you've got these three guys at the end of their life, at the end of it, leaning over his staff, blessing his sons. Um, at the end of jo- Joseph's life, he made mention of the exodus of Israel and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, here, here we are. Turn, if you, to, if you would, to the end of the book of Joshua. Joshua 24, last chapter of Joshua. I, I, just, I just love this. You know, as you find Joshua, I'll tell you, I've taught through the book of Joshua. In fact, in, in this classroom, like eight or nine years ago or so. And uh, let me tell you, Joshua is exciting. It's really exciting. I mean, it's the beginning of Joshua, uh, and Moses has died. And there's a new leader. Moses, my servant, is dead. Joshua comes on board. And uh, then Rahab shows up and hides these spies. And then there's uh, Jericho and so on. And uh, the ambush at Ai. I mean, it's really exciting. And the Gibeonite deception and so on. And man, it's just, it's really exciting. Joshua, to fun. it's fun to teach through. And then you get to chapter 12. And there are lists of defeated kings. And then you keep on reading, and it's chapter after chapter after chapter of land allotments. And let me tell you, that's really hard to preach. Uh, Really still good to preach. Um, I didn't just skip over them, um, but really hard to preach. But all that to say, Joshua's this thick, exciting book with all this action. And then all these lists of cities and conquered kings, it's not just a bunch of boring lists. It's like saying, hey, God is the one who gave you Cordova. And God is the one who gave you East Memphis. And God is the one who gave you Germantown. And he gave you Collierville. I mean, if you live in that, you go, oh, yes, God was faithful there. God was faithful there. God was faithful there. That's what's happening in the middle of the book of Joshua. So this big, thick, exciting book, you get to the very end of it. I mean, Joshua, he renews the covenant and, and the, the people have, have taken the land. They haven't quite subdued it, but they've occupied the land big, exciting book. You get to the end of it. And in chapter 24, verse 29, it says this. After these things, Joshua, son of Nun, servant of the Lord, died. He was 110. They buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaish. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that The Lord did for Israel. I mean, end of story, wrapping it up. I mean, awesome. And then, as for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of money. It It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. But isn't that amazing? The second to last verse of this big, thick, exciting book of God's work and conquest and faithfulness. And, and the, the writer of Joshua um, puts in the bones of Joseph, Joseph like it was part of this every page. It, like, like all the readers were going, wow, this action and wow, all this stuff that's taking place and wow. And, and like the bones of Joseph were just back there all the time. Well, well, in a sense, they were. Um, 
the, the bones of Joseph, they're, they're not a, a viral topic throughout the book, but verse 32 assumes the reader has them in uh, his or her uh, grip of the storyline. The bones of Joseph, the underlying current. The point is this for your life, your application. Um, the story is always moving forward, ladies and gentlemen. The narrative is always moving forward. It's never stagnant. Your life is never just in an eddy of despair. It's moving forward. The story's always moving forward and God's the one moving it forward. It moves forward with a purpose. It's heading towards somewhere. It's not just the earth lumbering on and your life lumbers on and you live your 80 years and that's it and, and, it's, and it just lumbers on. No, no, no. It's pointed somewhere. It means something. It matters. We'll talk about that more in a second. But I don't know if you've seen this movie or not, but it wasn't very good. We saw it years ago. Um, Sliding Doors. You ever seen that movie with Gwyneth Paltrow? Who's seen that? You know, it's like a, do we really, what's raining? Let's rent this stupid, whatever. You know, not great. It was not great. But the premise of the movie, stupid, um, she, she, it's, it's whether she gets on or off this train, you know, the sliding doors. I think it was a train, wasn't it? Um, so if she gets on the train, her life goes this direction. If she doesn't get on the train, her life goes this direction. And it's basically a movie showing these parallel lives and how different they were. Well, you know, it, I mean, the, you know, the, the, what makes it bad is, like, how did that happen, this magic thing? You know, it's just storytelling. But, um, you know, that, that very much describes life. I mean, you forget the car keys and you, you, you walk two steps and go back. You, now you're in a different traffic scenario. Um, all these little decisions we make, good ones, bad ones, things that are imposed upon us, things that are hurtful toward us, things that are mean toward us, things that are accidental toward us, things that just happen to happen toward us, things that we do ourselves. I mean, moment to moment, um, there, there, are, there are waves of consequences to all these actions. And ladies and gentlemen, think about it. God takes all those things and works them together for good. You're not robots. Can you resist the Holy Spirit? Can you? Can you? Every time you sin, you do. Now, you, you can't unto life. You can't unto life, unto being redeemed. But every time we sin, we go, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do it my way. That's resisting. That's grieving the Holy Spirit. God takes even those decisions, and he does this. It says in Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to them who love God and are the called according to his purpose. God works all things, even the dumb things, even the bad things, even the things imposed upon you. He's still working those things together for your good. He can handle all those details and make all those details and choices still come out to the end that he wants. And we see that in the lives of these guys. All right, second point. God's plan in the life of faith for the life of faith. Um, let's look at uh, verse one of chapter 11 of Hebrews. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now that means a couple things, ladies and gentlemen, to set the whole stage of chapter 11. It means that uh, our radio frequency as Christians is a spiritual realm, okay? The spiritual, the Christian life is in, in a spiritual uh, realm. That's one thing we learned from these patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. They believed um, 
God. They believed God in this life and they had a spiritual relationship. The second thing we learned from all this stuff is this, that um, they never saw a complete fulfillment of the promises God made to them in their lifetime. They never saw complete fulfillment. They never saw the, the, the promised land in that way. You know, and even later, David never built the, the temple. His son did. Moses never entered the land, the, the promised land. He saw it. He didn't enter it. Um, God makes a promise, but they weren't fulfilled promises, and yet they believed. So it was spiritual, and it was looking to a future reality that had a present, uh, present meaning too. Now, application for you. Um, that's harder to believe in than something you can see right away, isn't it? God says, hey, um, I have uh, gone to prepare a place for you. We just have to believe that. Can't see a, 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 a snap of it, you know? And we just have to, we just have to trust. And uh, I fear that we, you know, I was thinking about this last night, about this whole thing. Um, you know, when you're on vacation and you're in a hotel, uh, you ever discover a vending machine that's got Pop-Tarts in it? You're like, dang, I'm really on vacation. Because there are frosted strawberry Pop-Tarts in this vending machine. I mean, it's like the best thing ever. It's not like just like a normal vending machine. It's got Pop-Tarts in it, you know? Uh, it's unbelievable. And um, I think we tend, to, we tend to consider God that way. We think he's just wonderful and, oh, it's a God thing and, oh, praise and all. And yay, I mean, God does do very visible, profound things. There are things that you can point to in your life and go, man, that was obviously the Lord's work. Sometimes there are things that happen within the, the recesses of your heart. And you go, oh, that's obviously the Lord dealing with me. Or something happens physically in this physical world, and you go, God obviously intervened. It's just, it's outlandish to think that he didn't intervene in this particular thing. It's true. But ladies and gentlemen, we must not approach the God of this book like a vending machine with Pop-Tarts in it and, and just, oh, good, yay, we got the Pop-Tarts in my hand. It's right here. It's, I'm so happy it came out the way I wanted it. Um, no, ladies and gentlemen, um, that's not how it works. God promises us things that we can't always see and most often don't see. Um, and he changes us from the inside out. He uses those things to change us spiritually as we look forward and believe in future things. All right, our last point, God's plan in the victorious Christ. Um, I'm gonna flip to... Uh, the end of the book here, the end of the Bible. You don't have to turn, but listen to this. Um, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. That is the covenantal promise, ladies and gentlemen. I will be their God and they will be my people. And here it is at the very end, the culmination of all things when Christ victorious comes. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall be there, there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. 
Jesus speaking, friends. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. Heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithfulness, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is a second death. It's, it's saying that those who have aligned themselves with the king of kings, yes, we struggle with sin, it's true, but sin will be no more. Those who have claimed this Christ, those who have his name emblazoned on their soul, those who have been regenerated, they will spend an eternity with this God. So that there's an end of the story is the point. History, friends, is, as you've, I'm sure, heard, his story. History is his story. We're folded in to his story. That means there's a narrative all the time. God has a plan and it's rumbling, moving forward, pointing somewhere, pointing to the great day when the Savior comes, pointing to something. And that means to you, friends, that um, your life matters and your problems matter and your struggles matter. It's not God floundering around. It's God using those things in your life. So you, you might look at anything that's going on in the world, in history, your life, your relationships, and you might say, what is blank all about? You know, I just don't get it. What is, what is blank all about? Why am I going through blank? Why is blank happening? Well, the ultimate answer is God's working all things together for his will. And if you're a Christian, it means he's working all things together for your good. All right, last thing is a quote. And uh, I just texted this to somebody uh, yesterday. This is awesome. God takes my plans, edits them with sorrows and failures and weaknesses and gives it back to me one trial at a time. We cannot know what tomorrow brings, but we know the God who brings it. Um. The point is that you're folded into his story. And that means all of your experiences have deep meaning because they're all part of a God who works all things together for good. Holy Father, it's mysterious indeed that um, you would be interested in this, these little tiny little specks on this tiny little speck in this tiny little speck of a galaxy in a giant universe but uh, you, you, you do love us and you did send your son to this little place to die for us and to redeem us. It's, it's mysterious and all of heaven wonders and rejoices and sees your grace and sees your long suffering. It's just amazing, Lord. We thank you for all that reality and we pray that we would understand um, your vastness even better, that uh, you are eternal in all your excellences and that at all times, you have not given up. You're not looking away. You're not tired. You're not bored. Um, you're always working things to, for our good. And I, I pray, Lord, that each heart here would be gripped by your Holy Spirit, that we would know that reality and that it would change our view of the world around us and our own lives. Um, draw us near, Lord. We pray it in your grip. Amen. Thanks, everybody.